Good morning. My name is Sam McLaughlin, and I'm the senior pastor here at Bellmead. If we haven't met, I'm so glad that you're here today, and I would love to meet you in the narthex on your way out. We also want to say hello again to you who are worshiping online. We're so glad you're worshiping with us from wherever you are. Please say hello to Rachel, our online pastor. She is there to greet you. This is the third Sunday of our sermon series called What in the Word? And we are looking at challenging passages in the Bible. Uh, we know and believe that the Bible is sort of this guidepost for us. It's our strength, it's our inspiration. But there are also passages within it that completely puzzle us, that we have questions about. And we're gonna be real about that in this series. We have to ask ourselves, how do we approach the text? Is it a story? Is it history? Is it literal? Is it figurative? And what import does it have for our lives today? So in this series, and I'm gonna repeat myself every week, there are a couple of things that we're trying to do. The first is that I want you to understand that you are a theologian. And that might sound kind of lofty or scary, but anybody that thinks or talks about God or is trying to work out their faith is a theologian. And I say that because you are not meant, as someone who listens to me speak or somebody else speak about the Bible, you're not meant to digest what we say, but to really critically think about it for yourself. And you are capable of doing that and forming your own opinions. And so throughout this series, you're hearing me offer you a couple of different approaches or ways to interpret and understand the text. And it's up to you to sort of make meaning and put those pieces together for yourself. We've also been talking about how theology is best done in conversation. That we have conversations, conversation partners through people that we talk to, but books that we read, commentary, movies, videos. All of that helps to feed our interpretation and knowledge of the scripture. And we've also said that theology can change over time. So what you believe today may not be what you believe in five years, and that's not just okay, that's spiritual evolution and maturity. And so in this series, we're asking hard questions, which might bring even more hard questions. And in this series, we're seriously tending to the context of the scripture that we're looking at. We say for all scripture, we have to understand its original setting. And sometimes that means that things are time sensitive, and sometimes it means that things are timeless. And so I wanna make a point here to say that that doesn't make that scripture any less authoritative. It means that we are careful in what we, how we apply certain passages to our circumstances today, that the context of a certain passage may mean that it's meant to be where it is, okay? So, if you don't know already, we have been uh, grappling with hard questions that were submitted by you, by church members, uh, sent me passages, sent me questions, and today we've got a really easy one. Why are women told to be silent in the church? Somebody suggested that I just read this text aloud and just stare at you for five minutes in silence. <laughs> I thought that's not a bad idea, but that could get really uncomfortable really fast. So as we start with our context today, it's important to understand that the letters, the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy, as well as Titus, are often seen together as these kind of three letters that are a unit. 
and they're often called the pastoral epistles or the pastorals. If you look throughout the pages of these books, you see instructions for sort of how to order the church and really big details. Like later in 1 Timothy, you're gonna see like all these instructions on which widows should be allowed in your program of service, okay? So it gets really specific. And we hear that even in our text today about instructions on worship. These texts were written somewhere in the late first or early second century. And while they have Paul's name on them, many scholars today do not believe that Paul actually wrote them. There was a practice at the time called pseudonymy, um, which meant it was, it was a false claim to authorship, but it was an acceptable practice in that day, which meant somebody could write something that sounded like Paul and put Paul's name on it, and that wasn't to be deceptive. It was to take the ideas and the thoughts of Paul and apply them to new situations in a new context. Okay, but some of the reasons that people don't believe that these were written by Paul is that the pastorals have 175 words that are only used once in the New Testament. That means they only show up in these books. And oftentimes you will see words repeat themselves as you look across a certain author's writing. We also see that we don't have some of the language that Paul typically used, uh, things like in Christ or descriptions of the body of Christ, or that the way that Paul defines something like faith is defined differently in the pastorals than it is in other places. We also see that the pastorals have really concrete uh, ways of talking about church. But if you look at Romans uh, 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you see that Paul talks about the church in kind of a more charismatic, loose structure. Still, it is possible that Paul wrote these letters after he was released from prison in Rome or maybe even dictated them to someone else. So that's a little bit about authorship as we get into our context. Now it's also important when we're looking at a passage in the Bible to look what comes before the passage and what comes after. That helps us to situate it in the whole letter or book in which it's written. And before our text today, it says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, you've probably heard this verse, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God because all these people may come to know salvation through Jesus Christ. And so when we have those verses in mind, then we listen to verse eight. And verse eight says, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting their arms to God. And I want the women to dress moderately. Don't worry about your hair or your gold or your pearls or your expensive clothes. So if we take that into what we know about the verses that come before it, in a way this context is saying, I want you to concentrate on the things that are important to the Christian faith, to being a Jesus follower. I want you to pray for other people. I want you to pray in a way when you're submitting your life to God, you're saying, take my life, God, and let it be. And that you're not wrapped up in, the, in showing people how much wealth you have 
by the clothes that you wear and your gold and your pearls. So that's one way to understand this first part of the text. Now the second part says this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. One approach to understanding this text is that in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the words man and woman could have meant husband and wife. And if you know, remember that the society at the time was one in which the man had authority of the house. The man was, there's a word we use in theology, the paterfamilias. So he had legal authority over the whole house and every person in the house. And at the time, churches met in homes. And so it could have been that the writer is saying, what you do in the home, where the, husband, the wife submits to the husband, should happen in the church. The wife should submit to the husband. Which means that the writer is maybe not saying that a woman should be subordinate to a man in every single situation. That's just one take. Here's another take. A fascinating take that I learned this week as I watched a video by Dr. Gary Hogue, um, a seven-minute seminary video, so you can all watch it too at Seedbed Ministries. But he talks about a writing that was discovered by Xenophon of Ephesus. And this writing was written in the same time period as 1 Timothy. And what he realized was Ephesus was big. And so there are all these other gods. We've talked about gods with a little g that are going on in culture. And one of those goddesses that people worshiped, particularly women, was the goddess Artemis. The hairstyle that's mentioned in this passage is linked to a hairstyle that women in Ephesus would wear to show their piety for the goddess Artemis. And so in one way, the writer is saying, quit showing your piety for this pagan god. You know, show your piety for the god that you worship. What we also know is that Artemis became known as the goddess of childbearing. So Artemis' parents were believed to be Zeus and Leto. And it's a myth that Artemis helped to deliver her twin brother, Apollo. And so in that culture, she became, she became this goddess of childbearing, which meant that women at the time were sort of indoctrinated in this belief that we've got to show piety to Artemis or we might actually die in childbirth. We might actually lose our lives. And so in this way, Dr. Hogue is saying that while this text sounds oppressive to us, it was actually redemptive to the women at the time. That the text is saying, look, you don't have to dress like this goddess or worry about this goddess. Uh, we're not gonna let people come into the church and teach these pagan myths. Like maybe they are telling the people perpetuating this, these myths to be quiet in their house churches. And you don't have to worry about childbearing because God's got you. Believe in God with love and happiness and holiness. Another take and another reason that people don't believe that Paul wrote these letters is because the, the theology of, of gender roles and women's roles in these letters does not reflect how Paul talks or thinks in other areas of scripture. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 36, Paul does talk about the subordination of women to men. She tells them to be quiet. 
However, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, we know the chapter as it begins, love is patient, love is kind. As you continue on, you read about the gifts of the Spirit. And one of those gifts of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. Okay, and so when Paul gets to chapter 14 and he's telling someone to be quiet, scholars believe that there were women who were misunderstanding that gift, who were not using it correctly. And so Paul is correcting women who are trying to speak in tongues but not doing it properly. Now, that's a viable interpretation because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes reference to women who are praying and prophesying. Now, he does tell them, you need to keep your head covered. But he says, these women who are praying and prophesying. And so, this is what this means. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 are sort of the only verses of this nature in the text. Now what you also need to understand about Paul is that in Romans 16, he begins this way. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church. I want you to receive her and take care of her. And I want you to greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. Now, deacon in the text means servant, and a deacon was someone who partnered with the overseers and the elders of church to run things. So we have Phoebe as an example of a deacon. Now Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, were co-workers in the gospel with Paul. And in Acts 18, Priscilla teaches Apollos. Apollos is described, quote, as a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scripture. And despite this expertise, Priscilla is able to explain, quote, the way of God more adequately to him. So here we have another example in Paul's writings of a woman that is overseeing and teaching a man. We hear in Colossians that, uh, that we have reference to Nympha who had a church that meets in her house. We know of Lydia. We know that Paul in Galatians says there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what about this part then about Adam and Eve? The text says this, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, first of all, when we're talking about verse 13, we have to remember that we have two different creation narratives. The one in Genesis 1 talks about male and female being created in the image of God at the same time. Genesis 2 and on into 3 talk about Eve being formed from the rib of a man. There are many interpretations for what that might mean. There's a dominant one that maybe we've held on to, and we're not going to get really into that deep today because we're going to get to that in another sermon. But you have to, to go back to that when you're thinking about, did, was Adam really formed first and then Eve? Now, verse 14 says Adam was not the one deceived. However, this runs contrary to what Paul says in Romans 5. In Romans 5, Paul says, but death ruled from Adam until Moses, even over those who didn't sin in the same way. 
Adam was a type of the one who was coming, but the free gift of Jesus Christ isn't like Adam's failure. So if Paul is saying that in Romans 5, and here we have something different in 1 Timothy, what do you believe? Now here we kind of get to the part where we talk about what is the import for today and why might this be problematic? One question that I have is why do we latch onto this one scripture about women being silent in the church, but we ignore the thing that came right before it, right? Don't worry about braiding your hair or wearing your pearls or your gold or your expensive clothes. Why do we not worry about that part? Why do we latch onto this one verse about women being silent when we're seeing that Paul expressed a completely different view of female leadership in the church? Why do we latch onto this one verse when we see women lifted up throughout scripture because of their leadership? Here's a little bit of history for you. Deborah is named in the Hebrew scriptures as both a prophetess and a judge. Queen Esther, you know, saved the entire Jewish people from slaughter. Miriam was the first person in the Hebrew scriptures to be named a prophet. Not the first woman, the first person. Anna is called a prophet in Luke chapter two. There were four daughters of Philip described as prophesying in Acts chapter 21. Listen, a prophet in the biblical sense is a truth teller who delivers the word of God. They are a preacher. Junia was described in Romans 16, not just as a good apostle, but as an outstanding apostle. Why do we latch onto this one verse about women being silent in the church when Jesus, who we believe is the word made flesh, meets a woman at a well and sends her out to a town and we are told that everybody believes because of her witness. Why do we latch onto this one verse when Peter stands up to preach in Acts chapter two and he says, listen everybody, what's going on is not because we're drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he reminds them of this prophecy from Joel that says, I will pour out my spirit and men and women, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because of what the men and the women say. It matters how we interpret this text. And I'll give you a better example of how. Several years ago, I was working for a nonprofit ministry called Mountaintop. I'm sorry, many of you have heard me talk about it many times. I worked there during the summers of college, came up here from Alabama. And basically in the summer, we run week-long camps for youth. They come to this rural part of Appalachia to help people with home repair but we also take them on a very specific spiritual journey. So we're doing devotionals at, during the day and we're leading worship at night. And during that time, you know, we're, we're learning how to teach and to prepare sermons and to preach. Later on, I went on to the full-time staff at that ministry and part of my job was to recruit those summer staffers, recruit those same teenagers that I used to be leading those youth camps. And a part of that role was to interview those teenagers to see if they were really ready to come and do it. So one of my first summers on that full-time staff, I met a teenager named Rachel. 
Rachel was calm, not our Rachel here, okay? <laughs> Rachel was calm, although that one's calm too. Uh, grounded, she was reserved, but she wasn't shy. Um, Rachel was smart and deep and thoughtful. She was the kind of person like when she spoke, you listened. And what we realized because of her deep knowledge of scripture, as she preached that summer, that that was a gift that she had. We all started to call that out in her. I mean, people were just blown away at her spiritual maturity at 19 years old. So we were so excited the next summer that after a year at college, Rachel wanted to come back and be on summer staff again. And I'll never forget sitting in this sort of lodge style building with Rachel sitting on the couch. Me and my coworker, Bo, were interviewing her for this next position, this next summer that she would be on staff. And Rachel looked scared. Thought, well, that's kind of out of character for Rachel. The more that we talked, we were trying to get her to open up. Um, and finally, about three-fourths of the way through, she said, I'm sorry, but I have to tell y'all something. She said, I really want to come back and work for you, but you have to understand that I can no longer teach or preach the gospel. And we thought, Rachel, what? What has happened to you? What are you talking about? And she said, look, I've been a part of this campus ministry for a year in college, and it's just, I just don't believe it anymore. I don't believe that a, that a woman should stand up and have authority in teaching over men. And I'm sure that it felt like all the air was sucked out of the room at that moment, or that Rachel thought we were gonna be mad at her, but truthfully, I was devastated for her. And I did my best to counter it. I mean, I gave her different interpretations of scripture. I invited her to my house. I couldn't let it go because here was a gifted woman who was suppressed. And I think church, that's why it matters. Even if we don't believe it ourselves, even if we stand up here every Sunday, there is something ingrained that makes you doubt yourself because of interpretations like this. And so it matters, yes, that we have female leadership in the church, that not just our young girls, but our boys see it, and that we promote that in every other aspect of life. But even bigger than that, this is not a sermon about girl power. It's a sermon about gospel power. We need men and women willing to lift their hands and submit their lives to Christ and say, God, I will follow you wherever you ask me to go. We need men and women who believe they have a voice that leads other people to salvation. We need men and women with courage to prophesy, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. May we be people who believe in those gifts in ourselves and call it out in other people, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.